The first reading can be found on page 969, chapter 5, verses 13 to 16. Salt and light. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. The second reading is taken from Luke chapter 7, verses 36 to 50, which can be found on page 1036. Jesus anointed by a sinful woman. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned towards the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, Her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven, little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, Your your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Tim, and thank you for all the time he spent sitting with these two passages this week. We pray that you will just give him peace of heart and mind, give him the right words that he might speak your message to us today. Pray that we'll all hear your voice this morning. 
and have the courage to let you change us. Amen. Great. Well, it's good to be with you uh, this morning. Um, for, for us here um, at St. Swithin's in the church, we've had a, a great week with all sorts of different things going on this week. We've had a hustings with the main four candidates uh, for the election coming up. And uh, to my great surprise, with about 200 children here, uh, primary school children, some from St. Andrews and some from other schools around about that we had here, turned out there was a Labour landslide. Who could have guessed that? So I'm not promoting that, by the way, just in case some of you get anxious about my... But uh, in anticipating that the status quo would stand, that the Lib Dems and the Conservatives would be high because they would reflect their parents' thoughts or their parents' beliefs. No. They were influenced by what happened in front of them and by the different things that they said. And so there were lots of really, really salutary things in terms of learning for that, and it was amazing to be part of that. We also were here Friday night as part of Party in the City, opening up the venue, hearing all sorts of people perform. And it was great to celebrate with music and lots of different bands and choirs coming to perform here. And then last night, uh, a great concert here as well. It's great to play our part in the city, to play our part in what God has called us to be and to do in this city, to be a place of welcome, of hospitality and celebration that's the heart of all that we have that's good news. As those of you who are here regularly, uh, if you're not here regularly, it's great for you to come and well welcome to come and join us here this morning. But if you are a regular, you'll know that we've been doing a series, as Esther said, on neighboring, what it means to be a good neighbor. Looking seriously at whether what Jesus said, if we took that literally rather than metaphorically, what would that mean? So if Jesus literally meant what he said about that the answer to life, the answer to living well, the answer to living a full life, the answer to living a godly life, the answer to, to live is to love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. So we've been looking at some of the things that we can do, sometimes the small things that we can do that actually make a big difference in life. For example, like actually knowing the names of those people who live around us. Do you know the names of the people living around you? Have we thought, have we realized that there might be a significance to where God has placed us and that maybe God wants us to move from a place of just being strangers in a foreign land to being in relationship with people whose names we know? The challenge uh, of neighboring, the challenge of knowing those uh, people around us that we live near is significant as we look to build relationship. One of the things uh, that also shaped this that some of you will know is that um, one of the movements, of neighboring movements, that came out of the States as well, the United States, where a group of pastors went to visit the local leaders of the, um, the, na- of the city, the civic leaders of the city, and they said, what can we do as Christians to bless the city? 
And they had in mind lots of complicated programs, lots of great things that they could do. You know, that they, they would say, and the, the mayor of the city in this particular city said, do you know, if you would just love your neighbors, that would transform this city. And for them, for a pastor, to be told by the civic mayor that actually if you just did what Jesus had asked you to do, that would change a city. That was quite a salutary moment for lots of pastors in that, in that place, realizing that maybe if we took Jesus' words seriously, that it might make a significant difference. Because actually it is challenging being actually present and available to those who live around us, caring for our neighbors and loving our neighbors uh, makes a difference. I wonder when, um, in, in coming to this uh, last week, uh, in chatting to some of the, the parliamentary candidates, Ben Hallett, who is part of this parish, I think actually lives in this parish, um, uh, saying, well, what, you know, all the different schemes, all the different things we're going to hear over the next month, and what will make a difference to our society? What would it mean for, for us to say that neighboring is really important? So I wonder this week, over the last couple of weeks, whether, whether you've taken any steps in getting to know your neighbors at all. Do you know the name of anybody that you didn't know before? Have you had a great conversation with anybody that you haven't had before? Have you taken a step in, in looking to see and to know and to move from being a stranger to something more than a stranger, to an acquaintance or even to get into a relationship? One of the things, as I've said before, I think, of, of this week, we um, um, have to say Joe is much better at this, and it's in the next week, not this coming week, but the week after, we're going away um, for a week, and uh, we've got to know one of our neighbors on the, the, our left, and they were going away um, for a period of time on a holiday, and Joe said, well, could I just move your post for you? Just do something really simple. Can I move your post each day? I said, oh yeah, that'd be great actually. It's always something that's really difficult. I'd love you to do that for, for, for me. And so they've said they'll do that, and so when, when they're away, we'll be able to do that for them. And then we were sat there saying, well, we're away for a week, what do we do? And we've got a neighbor on the other side. I thought, well, he's slightly older, so you thought, well, maybe I can't ask him, but we said, Joseph went next door and said, would you mind moving our post next week? He said, yes, love to. And sometimes it's just the simple things that enable us to start to build a relationship rather than really complicated things that actually we sometimes think will make a difference. If you've read through the Gospels um, and you've looked at Jesus' life, the Gospels are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in the New Testament. If you've looked closely at Jesus' life at any point and looked through them, you'll notice that there's some surprising things about Jesus' life that maybe you haven't noticed before. One of which, for example, is you see that Jesus always seems to be at the center and at the heart of a party or a celebration or a festival that's going on. We often try to emphasize the times in Jesus' life when he goes and be on his own when we kind of think we know to treat. But actually, if you look carefully at the, the scriptures, you'll see that Jesus is often at the center of parties, the first miracle, one of the defining miracles is the wedding in Cana in Galilee. 
Jesus didn't separate himself from those places, but was right in the center of those places. So I wonder whether you associate being a Christian as being people who are party people or celebration people. That might be no this morning uh, by the sounds of it. I wonder, do you? Do you think that Christians are people who celebrate, who know how to have and to live a good party? That isn't rhetorical, by the way. I wonder what your vision of Christian life is like, not just on your own, but together. I know one of the defining moments for me when I was, um, I think I was about 18, I went uh, abroad on a a trip, a mission trip to uh, Germany and Berlin, and I was on a trip, and I was 18 years old, and I was doing lots of different things with a Christian organization on the streets of Berlin, involved with the churches in Berlin. It was the summer the walls came down, and I was quite earnest, I was young, I was quite impressionable, and I wanted to serve God and do the right things. I wanted to talk to people, I wanted to share the good news that I had, and I was doing all sorts of things. But we were involved with a number of churches that came round, and one of the churches that were involved, it came to the end of our time there, and they put on a great celebration for the, as a thank you for what we'd done. And do you know what? I was quite uncomfortable. I was quite uncomfortable as an 18-year-old boy because I thought, this seems extreme. This seems, you know, overflowing. It seems abundant. It seems generous. It seems hospitable. And actually, my vision of God was quite narrow, was quite minimal. I thought God in very kind of ascetic terms, really. So I wonder this morning what your vision of a good Christian life is like. I wonder what you think Christian maturity is like. One of the great pictures for many of us, I think we grow up with an idea of Christian maturity as as being sort of someone like who's a bit sort of grey-bearded, looks wise and sits there, or if you're a lady, different from that, wise, grey-haired and sits there. And our vision of maturity is to do with a certain image in our mind that shows we've made it or that somehow our godliness is more evident. But actually, when you look through Scripture, we see something slight different. So I wonder if I said to you, if you depict somebody in your Christian life, you thought as a Christian, they were the person who's really got it as a Christian. They're the person I've put on a pedestal. I don't know, who would come to your mind? Mother Teresa? Maybe. Billy Graham? Maybe. William Wilberforce? Got to get that in. Well, we're in this church. A great Bible scholar? Somebody you really revere? Their education, their intellect, and their teaching? Corrie ten Boom? Someone who's been musically astonishing? So what is the end game in life? Do we look at people who are really gifted and think they are the epitome of maturity? Well, for us, biblically, maturity is about being transformed into the likeness of Jesus. 
It's a life being transformed into the life of Jesus. Therefore, when we look at Jesus' life, one of the reasons it's so important to look at Jesus' life is understanding who Jesus was, how he behaved, and what he did, where he placed himself, where he didn't place himself. And that's why we spend so much time looking at him to see what he was like, what his nature was, and how he behaved and what he did. So as we look at your own life, is your own life being transformed? Is it a work in progress of God at work transforming you? Because one of the things about when we look at Jesus' life and seeing the people he spent time with, he didn't spend time with the people you'd necessarily expect. The religious people were really uncomfortable about being with Jesus because Jesus was an embarrassment. Jesus was an embarrassment because he spent time with the wrong sorts of people. He didn't spend time with the people that religious people thought he should be spending time with. I wonder whether the religious people would be embarrassed about who you are close to this morning. People who are ruthless in business, are you close to them? People who are poor, are you close to them? People who are dispossessed, are we close to them? People who are disabled, are we close to them? People who are addicted, are we close to them? Are we close to successful people? People who are in the wrong type of industry, doing the wrong type of things, are we close to them? Jesus spent time with all sorts of people from all sorts of walks of life. One of the difficult things is that for many of us, we can sit aside from what's going on in the world and sit and spend ourselves, well, do you know what, that, what's going over there is not good, it's not godly, and I need to separate myself away from that. And we fearfully sit in judgment and condemnation. Subtly sometimes, it's not always explicit, because actually they make us feel uncomfortable. Though they have the wrong type of politics. They have the wrong type, the wrong type of people. Um, they're not our type of people. So they're over there, and I'm here. And what we end up doing is fearfully, we place ourselves subtly on the outside. And there is wisdom in surrounding yourself with good people. Please don't mishear me. This is not me saying you just need to give up on Christian discipleship. There is wisdom in surrounding yourself with godly, prayerful people. It's at the heart of what calls us to in discipleship. People will pray for you, protect you, encourage you, nurture you, teach you, train you. However, if we're not careful, if we only look there, what we end up doing is we turn inwards, which is never God's intention. We end up becoming a huddle, and we fearfully withdraw from the world, not fully engaging in the world God has made, failing to connect and build with relationships from those outside our circle or outside our church, and we stop putting ourselves in a place where God wants to use us, God would love to use us to bless other people. God has uniquely called you to bless other people. And that's not just the people inside this building. Jesus is present at the heart of this party with the wrong type of people. The religious leaders can't understand it, but these are the people Jesus came for. 
I'm not put, talking about putting ourselves at risk, but full of the Spirit, full of the Spirit, Jesus places himself in those places. And for us, we need to grow in confidence that God is calling us to be people who can be placed among that and not live in fear, to be prepared to bring light to the dark places of this world rather than to walk and withdraw away fearfully. Our reading from, John, um, from Luke 7, which we're just going to look at briefly now, if you've got your Bible in front of you, do open that. It's an incredible story. Jesus is inviting to this gathering of a religious leader's house. At this time, banquets were often held in the courtyards of houses, and these were public areas where people were, weren't necessarily invited, but they could walk through and come in to be the part of the banquet. And this woman, who's described as a sinner, which is a subtext for being a prostitute, walks in to the banquet. Clearly, this lady had heard Jesus before. She'd either heard him, she'd seen him, him do miracles, heard his teaching, or seen him minister. And something within her changed. Something within her resonated. She brought this alabaster jar to be with Jesus to the extent that she comes in to this house. Jesus and Simon are sitting there and this woman, this prostitute, comes, kneels and kisses Jesus' unwashed feet. Jesus' feet are drenched in her tears and she proceeds to wipe them away with her own hair. If this is a demonstration of love, of gratitude, of worship. She then empties this jar of alabaster, uh, this alabaster jar of perfume over Jesus' feet. What an extraordinary act of gratitude, of love, and of worship. I wonder if you were there at that table, at that banquet, how uncomfortable you were felt would you have felt uncomfortable if a woman came, a woman with her reputation, with her past, came and did that? How inappropriate that is, surely. Come on. How wasteful. Come on. How extreme. Come on. Don't you think? How embarrassing. How un-English, dare I say. Simon watches this all. But it's clear from verse 39 that he doesn't really see it at all. See, if Jesus is the real thing, if he is the prophet, the expected and the anticipated one, then surely he would never let this woman do this to him. Surely no holy person would allow this lady to do that in public. So Jesus tells Simon and the others a story. There are two men who were owed money and were not able to pay back their debts. One owed 50 denarii, the other 500. One denarii is about one day's wage, or roughly about that. And in today's language, Therefore, there's a person who owes, I don't know, a few thousand pounds and a person who owes really a lot, a lot of money. 
One person maybe had built up their credit card debts. One had been chasing all sorts of different things that they needed to live the life they, they felt they were due. The other maybe had made a series of bad investments, bad choices, bad decisions, not just yesterday, not just the day before, but over a lifetime of bad choices. Choices that have led to debt and to hardship. Maybe bad business decisions, gambling debts, credit card debts, lifestyle choices, and all of this was there as a debt to be over this person. This person, particularly with a bigger debt, is trapped in a cycle of debt, desperate, maybe depressed and overwhelmed, looking to find a way out of this cycle, this, this cycle of growing debt. And the lender cancels the debt of both people. So which of these two people loved the lender the most? whose life was full of, most full of gratitude. Well, Simon responds. I think this is a great verse uh, for those of you who like a bit of irony. Uh, Simon responds, I suppose the one with the biggest debt. Is that the right answer? You can imagine Simon saying, well done, Simon. Take a gold star. You've worked that one on. You know, Jesus sort of seeing him. But yet so far the conversation has just been between Jesus and Simon. Then Jesus points to Simon, do you see this woman? What Simon saw was someone far beneath him, far inferior to him. He'd sat in judgment of her. Simon, you didn't even give me any water. You didn't even give me any water. Yet look at what this woman has done for me washing my feet with tears and hair, kissing my feet and covering them in perfume. Do you see this woman? Do you see this woman? Jesus says to Simon, how much she loves me. See, Simon had written her off, he'd condemned her. She's the wrong type of person in the wrong place at the wrong party with the wrong people. He'd written her off. Yet here, in this moment of deep embarrassment to Simon is an exquisite godly moment of wonder, love, and worship. And it begs us a question for us today. Do we see, or what are we looking at on a daily basis? Are we really seeing what's around us and where God may be at work? Are you really seeing the God-given moments God may be giving you day by day. Those divine moments that are inspired by God, where the Spirit of God is at work in people's lives. Have we put the filters on? Have we put the blindfolds on? Have we put the things on that prevent us in because they are the wrong type of people that God would not be doing? I want to go after these type of people who are my type of people. Are we so caught up in our own world, so consumed, so busy labeling, so busy working out who are the people we want God to bless that we fail to see who God does want to use and work in their lives as God opens those opportunities for us? Sometimes it is the unexpected people that God is at work in, not the people we think God ought to be working in. 
two of the biggest challenges to us in the lack of, in our challenge of being good neighbors to those we live around is, as we talked last week, the shortage of time, but the other is fear. It's difficult to escape stories on the news about the brokenness of our world, about things that go wrong, about things that are depressing and discouraging, about abuse, about selfishness, about greed. And, and these things, in many ways, although I understand why, we celebrate them as a community. We celebrate the brokenness of our world. And we, in many ways, end up glorifying it. And these images of the fall and the R of the fall, the brokenness of mankind, can lead us to think, do you know, the world is a terrible place. It's a godless place. These images that bombard us, and we separate ourselves off, and we retreat from the world. We think the worst of people, and subtly, fear takes hold. Irrevocably takes hold. So we sit in judgment of others. X can't be trusted. Y is beyond the pale. Now, I'm not calling us to be naive or to be unwise, but we are called to be spiritually discerning. But none of that stops us engaging in the world. For Christians, the birth, the life, the death, the resurrection, and the ascension that we all celebrate this week, and Pentecost that we will arrive to in about two weeks' time, God has uniquely acted that means that death, the fall, sin, is not the last word. As Christians, the light shines through us. We are a city on the hill that cannot be hidden. God has given us to shine as beacons in this world, to bring transformation to the world around us, not to sit powerless and fearful. Death is conquered. Christ is victorious. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Sin, brokenness, disappointment, anger, bitterness, frustration, whatever it is that's consuming your life this morning is not the last word. Resurrection is the last word. A prostitute with a terrible past, with no future, finds healing, finds restoration, finds forgiveness, finds hope, and finds peace. And she finds it this day. And that's open to each one of us today as we come to celebrate communion too. Being a good neighbor is challenging. You don't choose your family, they used to say. You also don't choose your neighbors, generally. And that's why it's so challenging. We don't just choose our set that we think we would like to be. But it's those who we live closest to who see the integrity of our lives, see the consistency of our lives, the brokenness of our lives, and it becomes most clear. You know, I've been on a number of mission trips over a number of years to different parts of the world. Done some great things, been inspiring to be there, made a difference in different, different countries, done some practical things, done some spiritual things. But you know what? At the end of a week or two weeks or two months or three months or five months, I walk away. And it's very easy to see our life like that, where we look at the short term. But with our physical neighbors and also with our families, but with our physical neighbors generally, 
they're always there. It's very easy for us to live with a Christian mask on. We say the right things, we do the right things, we turn up to the right things. Yet up close, we recognize that we're wearing a bit of a mask. And God calls us again to surrender our lives to him as people who are weak, in need of his grace, in need of his mercy, in need of his love, in need of his peace this morning, in need of his strength this morning. We need God's restoring touch in our lives. Throughout the biblical text, there's that call to love. That's called to make love central throughout the whole Christian story. And loving God our neighbors is throughout scripture. And it's very easy for us to kind of think, actually, do you know, it's not as simple as that. But if we do, we miss God, what God wants to do and has called us to, the life that he's intended for us. God, who is love, created us out of love, for love, to love others. And as we commit ourselves to love God and also to love our neighbors, so we are filling one of God's great purposes for us in this life. It changes us, but it also changes others. So I want to encourage you this summer, over this summer period, to continue to pray and to take steps to get to know your neighbors better. God has given us us a gift of those around you to realize that God goes before you and wants to use you to bless those he has placed around you. And sometimes it starts with just doing very simple things, like knowing their name, realizing what you could do, going for coffee with them, inviting them around for a meal, or whatever. Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come afresh. Thank you for the very clear teaching in Scripture. Father, would you help us? Would you empower us? Would you strengthen us? to live the life each one of us has been called to by you, each one of us uniquely made in your image. And Father, wherever we find ourselves this morning in the challenges that are ahead of us, we cry out afresh this morning that we would find forgiveness, we'd find peace, we'd find hope afresh where we may feel broken, hard, and discouraged. Forgive us when we ignore the opportunities around us. We sit in judgment over other people who are not our type of people. And would you mold us and shape us to be a people of your own heart. In Jesus' name, amen.